This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Missing is produced by What's the Story Sounds. They also make lots of other great content, which I think you might like. Why not sign up for What's the Story Crime? On there, you'll find series including The Missing completely ad-free, as well as bonus content and even entire series you can't hear elsewhere. Signing up is super easy. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. We all have our vices, those pick-me-ups we rely on to get us through the day. But every now and then, those vices can slide into addiction. For Sandra Gant, it was alcohol. Her addiction put the mother of four in a vulnerable position and at the mercy of people without good intentions. So when she went missing on November the 15th, 2003, her three daughters, Carrie, Michaela and Lauren, knew there was a chance it had played a role. The girls had seen firsthand what it had done to their kind, loving mother the disastrous impact her addiction had had on her health and her personal life. They had tried hard over the years to get Sandra the help they knew she needed, but their efforts had fallen on deaf ears. On that day in November, when Carrie got their mother's landlord to open the door of Sandra's bedsit in Clapton-on-Sea, Essex, she expected to see her inside. But Sandra was nowhere to be seen. The siblings knew the police could only be so helpful. Only they knew their mother's routine, the places she liked to frequent, and most importantly, the colorful cast of drinking companions she had accumulated over the years. Jumping into Carrie's car, they realized it would be up to them to piece together Sandra's movements and try to bring their mother home. I'm Pandora Sykes, and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series produced by What's the Story Sounds and brought to you with help from the charities Missing People and Locate International. 
they believe that all of the cases in this series could still be solved. This is The Missing, Sandra Gant. From an early age, Michaela, the middle sister, knew that her mum wasn't quite like the others. She used to always um, come on my school trips, which I used to hate because I dreaded it because I was like, oh, for God's sake, because my mum wasn't like a, uh, you know, the typical, you know, the people next door, like, you know, the Joneses or whatever. She had tattoos and she swore quite a lot. Sandra loved her tattoos. For her, they were an important form of self-expression. But Michaela remembers one day, whilst at school, a classmate called her mother a witch, a comment she wasn't prepared to let go unanswered. I was like, how dare you call my mum a witch? But obviously I knew people saw my mum as being different, so I took that very offensively, and I will always remember that day till, the, till forever. Michaela struck the classmate in question, and, not too keen on facing the inevitable consequences, sprinted out of the building. That was the first time I ever got really angry about someone else, like, judging my mum as such. I couldn't really understand that, but now I'm older, that was, like, the first time I thought, how dare you comment about my mum, just because she's not perfect like everyone else or comes across as perfect. Obviously, she's still my mum and she's perfect to me. Sandra and her husband, Ken, a builder, settled down together on a quiet council estate in the seaside town of Clacton to raise their family. With four children to look after, Sandra had a lot on her plate. But when things were good, as Lauren, the youngest child, recalls, they were very good. On a Saturday evening, we would like sit and watch telly and stuff together. And um, she'd always like come and get in my bed with me when I went to bed because I wouldn't go to sleep. So she used to get in my bed and I used to twiddle her hair. Like all kids, the sisters could be a handful when they wanted to be. I got in trouble all the time, but that was just because I was really loud. I used to be out at like five in the morning on roller skates and get told off for doing that. Carrie is the eldest of the three sisters, and her relationship with Sandra has never been straightforward. I was my, my dad's first child, so I, I was the oldest of my dad's children. Um, he adopted my, my brother. Um, when he was a, a baby, um, but I was his, you know, first child, real child, biological child. And um, I think um, my mum was jealous of me, um, and I think that's what really fed our relationship all the way through, which made it very argumentative, and it, it was a struggle. When she was 15, Carrie became pregnant, and she thinks that that officially drove a wedge between her and her mother. And by that time, that wasn't the only relationship in Sandra's life that was deteriorating. My mum and dad used to argue a lot. Just the hardships of life. Ken had found a way to relieve his frustrations. My dad, he got on really well with the next door neighbour and he was into playing guitars and it, it further developed. It, it, they had like a little band, you know, they sort of got, got a band together and my mum was always sort of at home with us kids and didn't really get out, you know. She didn't really have an outlet and I think that made, it impacted much further on their relationship. Sandra was doing everything she could to hold it together but she had personal issues of her own. My mum 
it's she did struggle herself with with lots of her own demons and she was very like compulsive in her ways and I think to counteract that compulsion I think my mum used alcohol to to cope you know that's that's where it started from. At first the girls didn't realise their mother had a problem until they started spending time with their friends' families. At school, everyone used to invite around the house for dinners, and I was like, yay! So I'd go in the houses, they'd have really nice houses, and their mum and dad would be like these really like, well-spoken and like well-calm, mannered people. <laughs> and then my friend started, used to ask to come around to mine for dinner, and I used to like, make an excuse all the time, say, oh no, you can't because this or whatever. And I remember one time I actually had one of my friends around for dinner, and my mum decided to burn the sausages, be a bit tipsy, not like drunk, like plastered. And my dog at the time decided to have an epileptic fit as well and started foaming at the mouth. So my friend was like screaming ahead of going, oh, like crapping herself. And uh, yeah, so that was my, my experience of having a friend over after school. But obviously it was just like my mum wasn't, you know, you never knew what you'd expect from mum. Meanwhile, Ken's band went from strength to strength. The band started like playing at venues and stuff, so that then gave mum more ammunition to be like, oh, well, I'll go there and drink um, because of, you know, there's all these women and all that that are giving dad and the band attention and it just fueled kind of her jealousy. Eventually, Ken decided he'd had enough of his wife's behaviour. He didn't like what alcohol was doing to her. He hated the people whose orbit it drew her into. And most of all, he was afraid of how all of this might affect their children. In the end, he made the only decision that he felt he could make, and he filed for divorce. So initially we stayed with mum, um, and dad moved out. But then, you know, with things being very difficult, like Carrie had obviously, at some point after the breakup, Carrie then had got her own um, place because of mum. Mum basically said she didn't, you know, kicked her out because she didn't want her living there with a baby. The fact that her alcoholism had marred her whole thinking and she was kind of at a loss and she was letting people come around to her house that, you know, she would never have let these people come around or been friends with these people before. But I think she was in such a, a way that, you know, she was just finding solace in people that were going through similar stuff. So my sisters were kind of, you know, they were young, you know, they were seeing things that they shouldn't. And my dad then obviously got involved and, and said, look, this isn't happening. You know, you're meant to be, you know, what kind of mother are you sort of thing. And, and he said that, you know, my sisters were going to go and live with him. Sandra's well-being began to rapidly decline in the months leading up to the separation from her husband. And after the divorce was finalised, her health went downhill. Everything was just, you know, so much, so much worse. And then, and then eventually she lost her home. The drinking got more. The people that she hung around with, you know, were, were alcoholics. You know, my, my younger sister, Michaela, once she went to live with my dad, she, you know, she couldn't even t try and have a relationship with my mum. She hated her. You know, she was only young herself, she was only 10. But, you know, everything had, mar you know, had, had made her feel like oh, this person who we call mum is, is a bad person and I don't want anything to do with her. She's embarrassing. And Michaela would, 
you know, cross over the road and stuff because she, you know, she saw her in town drinking with like her other drinking people. Um, so that, you know, Michaela didn't have a relationship with mum after that point. Whereas Lauren would still see her, she'd still go and see her, also see my mum. And I'd try and support her the best I could. And then a new man came into Sandra's life. Before she lost her home, she started to go out with this boy, not that much older than my brother. And he was also a drinker and with his own, you know, problems. They used to fight really badly and, you know, get really violent with each other. And he was in and out of prison, normally for, you know, behaviour, you know, public order, you know, where he'd lose his stuff in the streets, you know, he'd start shouting or shouting at the police. What frustrated the sisters more than anything was that they could see what a positive effect he could have on Sandra when he was sober. He was really nice. Yeah, he he would. I, I actually, you know, without the drink, he was a really nice guy. But the moment, you know, he started drinking, he turned into some, you know, this monster, you know. And and the same with my mum. And they were like two peas in a pod, really. If they could both just be without alcohol, they could have been a lovely couple. Sandra's relationship eventually came to a violent conclusion, and she was placed in secure accommodation for her own safety. She lost her home. She went into like a secure, like like a flat that had like a security thing so that she could call the police if this guy come round. And she was there for a very small amount of time before she left there, I think. And then she kind of made herself homeless at one point. And I think she was living, living on the streets for, you know, a small period of time. She lived in a car in Clacton. But I weren't really, you know, I I would struggle to maintain the relationship um, at that point. Carrie stepped in and put her mother up in a bedsit on Wellesley Road. By this point, Sandra's daughters had figured out, by necessity, how to work around their mother's alcoholism. I learnt to see her at the times when, before she'd got her money from this uh, from the social security um, before she could spend it on and get drunk I'd see her like at the at the beginning of that day and I'd try and we'd, we could be normal and actually have a conversation and it's only once she start drinking that it would all sort of go wrong. But that didn't mean they wouldn't cross paths with her unexpectedly from time to time. Because of Clapton on sea is very little town obviously because I'm hung around the town with the alcoholics and um, it was hard not to bump into her but I didn't have a um conversation and you know I do feel bad about it now but at the time I was just like it's embarrassing so I used to work in Clinton Cars which is right at the actual town centre and one day one of my friends at work was like ain't that your mum and my mum was sitting outside McDonald's talking to pigeons drunk and I was just like no nah, I don't know who she is and I look back and think oh, I can't believe it I denied that was my mum but obviously at the time I was so like embarrassed so Michaela and Sandra's relationship was very rocky in the months leading up to her disappearance. But when Michaela got pregnant, she found herself full of questions for her parents and she reached out to her mother. So I hadn't really spoke to mum and I kept asking my dad, like, oh, how much did I weigh when I was born? Obviously, it's my first child and stuff. So I didn't know any of these things. I wanted to know, like, you know, just curiosity, like, 
um, why did you call me Kayla and stuff like that, you know, just silly things. And he was like, oh, I don't know. You told your mum. I said, I don't want to talk to her. Like, you know, obviously I was still very angry with her about how she's been. Um, so I decided to, like, you know, draw a line under it and, um, and uh, if, if I want to find out any of this stuff, perhaps I invite around to mine and my partner's, like my, my son's dad at the time, um, place and had some dinner, like right around for dinner. But I said, don't come around if you've had a drink. Like, don't want me to come around. Yeah. Um, so she came around and we had a really good chat. I made a gammon egg and chips, one of her favourite foods. But I asked her stuff and uh, had a really good day. She didn't drink. I even offered a glass of wine when she was there. She was like, no, no, I won't drink while I'm here. And last words I said to her, or we exchanged from one to another, was I said, "Oh, okay, well, I've been really nice, mum. You know, you know, whenever you know, come round soon." She went, "Yeah, next. I promise I'll come round soon. And next time I'm not had a drink, I'll come round. I promise. Love you." And and that was that. And I was seven months pregnant at the time, but it was kind of like I thought that, "Oh my God, I'm finally going to have a relationship with my mum. Like she's going to be part of my life. You know, you know, things are going to change." And da da da. And then. Obviously, she went missing while I was still pregnant with my son. Over the years, Sandra's family had done everything they could to try and get her professional help. My nan, my dad's mum, you know, when she tried to help her and, you know, she did go to the doctors a few times and she did have a couple of different treatments. Some of the treatments were extreme. There were things like shock therapy treatments at the time. I think she had it like, once or twice and she well once maybe I think it was and like she then would never go back and um it was sort of always in her mind that no there's nothing wrong with me I'm okay I'm okay but what made Sandra's subsequent disappearance all the more jarring was that in the two years prior she had been hard at work on her sobriety she was really 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 trying and she was actually getting somewhere more and the and the she, I know she went into uh, a place just down the road from hers, which I can't remember the name of, um, to get, it was like open road, that's it, open road. And uh, she was having therapy uh, there um, just before um, acupuncture. And um, I know yeah, it was a, it was also like, like an AA type. It wasn't like the AA, but it was that type of uh, help and therapy from this place called Open Road which was along from where she lived. And uh, so things were really like beginning to turn around. And, you know, all these good things were, were happening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Carrie's relationship with her mother had turned a corner by this point, and they were seeing each other regularly. I'd always sort of see her on her payday, um, and I used to be with her and like we'd go and have lunch or, you know, just just be together for that, you know, maybe an hour, you know, hour or two. Um, and then once she'd done them things, that's when she would go and buy a drink. So, you know, 
<laughs> it, it was always that way. And this was on a Thursday, I think. Um, and I'd gone to meet her like usual. I think I, I, I think I'd seen her on the Friday. She'd rang me in the evening um, from Paybox. She normally used to ring, go to Paybox and do a reverse call thing. So, uh, so to ring me. And she rang and would ask. She asked me for some money, or I think I know she wanted to borrow some money, and she needed some bread and some cigarettes. She had to take take around some tobacco. Uh, and I saw her that Friday, and she was up. She was upset. I can't really remember. It was probably probably about her partner who was in prison that she was upset about. Um, but I'd given her bits and pieces. I'd gone up to her room and. And we'd had a hug. So I was saying goodbye and uh, like she gave me a hug and she said, you know, you know, I do love you. Uh, she was just saying them things that she probably hadn't said. And uh, I was saying, it's all right, you know, I'll see you on so-and-so day. And uh, yeah, and uh, you know, just obviously saying it's all right, mum, you know, it's going to be all right or whatever. Carrie never saw her mum again. The alarm bells first started ringing when Sandra failed to turn up to a lunch date with Carrie in town. And I kind of hung around a bit and sort of wandered around the town and see whether, you know, I could see her because it's a very small town. And uh, yeah, there's so many people that she hung around with that were just sort of mulling around. But I couldn't see her anywhere. Carrie got in touch with Lauren, but her sister hadn't seen Sandra either. Carrie decided that the following day, during her lunch break, she'd pop over to her mum's bedsit, a short walk from the school where she taught, and find out what was going on for herself. So I went to her bedsit and couldn't get an answer, and I buzzed the landlord flat, um, and he comes to the door and I explained that I was meant to meet mum yesterday, you know, has he seen her, you know, can I go up and, you know, knock on the flat? Sandra's landlord told Carrie he hadn't seen her mother since the previous Saturday when they had crossed paths in the stairwell as Sandra was on her way to do some laundry. And that was the last time he'd seen her. And I said, you know, I was really worried, would he have a key to her room and could I go in and just make sure she wasn't laying there, you know? And... Uh, I kind of did think to myself, my God, you know, this is bad. You know, I'm going to find mum dead, you know. As the key turned in the lock, Carrie braced herself for the worst. He let me into a room and it is literally just one room. So I opened the door and it was pretty dim that day, like a dark, like today really, I suppose, cloudy, gloomy day. Carrie found the electricity meter and popped in a 50 pence piece. Everything come on, like uh, the, the lights, the, the, the radio, uh, the TV with the volume down, uh, the heater, you know, everything that would have been on as if she was in there. She approached her mum's table and chair. There she found a half-rolled cigarette, an open but almost full can of lager, and finally Sandra's purse. I looked in her drawer to see if her her benefit book, like a pay book thing that we used to have, um, used to have uh, whether she, that was there and that was all there, all of her stuff that she would need. 
After returning to work, Carrie phoned the local hospital to see if her mother had been admitted. When that proved to be a dead end, her next call was to her husband. I said, can you ring the police and let, you know, tell them what I've, what I've found and a report are missing because something's happened. Um, and then I had to work the rest of my, my shift that afternoon. Luckily, it was only like a, an hour and a half at the end of the session. And then I think I rang Lauren. The sisters took Carrie's car and drove to all of Sandra's usual haunts, hoping to locate their mother or at the very least, someone who could point them in the right direction. Lauren knew a lot of the places where mum's friends were, you know, places that she would go um, that I probably weren't, wasn't aware of or, or, or didn't really think about um, because Lauren was 17 at the time. You know, she was in town all the time with, with, with mum. And we were just sort of making a plan of where to go, who to ask, what people we could find to find out where mum was. And I think when we got in the car, I think then we went and picked up my sister, Michaela. They eventually crossed paths with a man who we'll call Nick, one of Sandra's longtime drinking companions, and peppered him with questions. Where's mum? When did you last see her? And he was very vague. I don't think he was very... Like he was holding back, didn't, weren't telling us something, but he was coming with us and showing us places that, oh, maybe look down here, maybe go to, you know, this bit under, round by the seafront, like in the beach huts. Meanwhile, Carrie's husband hadn't made much headway with the police. They knew of my mum as a person around town that normally, obviously, getting called to her and her partners for, you know, fighting or you know, some, some disturbance. So they, they did know of my mum and they knew that she was an, an alcoholic. And I think they kind of went, OK, yeah, we know, we'll, we'll, we'll make that report. But that was it, sort of thing. There was nothing else sort of come back. Um, they, would, you know, they would put the fingers out, they'd, you know, see the patrols, will, you know, look out for her, that kind of thing. Given Sandra's history, it was hard for the siblings to know precisely how concerned they should be at this point. This wasn't the first time their mother had pulled a vanishing act. We were really worried, but at the same time, in the back of my mind, I was kind of, you know, there was still that hope of thinking, oh, maybe her phone's died or, you know, she's gone round her friend's house and she's had too much to drink, then woke up and started drinking again and hasn't really thought about, oh, I need to let them know. They continued their search, with Nick now sitting in the back seat, acting as a navigator of sorts, and eventually found themselves in the village of Jaywick. It's like, classed as like the most deprived place, like locally to here. So like, the roads are like full of potholes, it's really bumpy and you're, you know, we're going to like all these places where there's buildings that are boarded up. Nick attempted to direct the sisters to places he and their mother had recently been to, as well as the living quarters of some of their regular acquaintances, but his instructions were haphazard at best. They all are very vague because they're all drinkers and they're all, you know, and the memory is very spotty and it's very difficult with that type of person to to get a timeline, uh, you know, a consistency. But at the same time, it just felt like he was skirting around... I always say, like, well, when was the last time you saw mum? And it just felt like that he wasn't telling us everything. And then 
our searching kind of went on for a good, I think three or four days, I think it was. We was going out every day uh, in the evening, you know, trying to find different people that we knew. And if we couldn't find them that day, we, you know, the next day we'd find them, you know, and then we'd ask them when they see mum. And, you know, at the same time be saying to the police, well, you know, mum's still not, you know, still haven't found anything. You know, we've, we've heard this, we've heard that. And they were just sort of placating us, you know. Eventually, the sisters' persistence paid off. We managed to find uh, one of mum's, like, closer friends, and she was at this place in Jaywick, and we managed to find it, knock on the door. Uh, obviously, we said, you know, we want to speak to this person, and uh, it was all a bit cagey, but then they let us in, and we actually went into this, like, house and spoke to this woman. When it came to providing information on their mother, the woman in question, who I'll refer to as Lucy, wasn't exactly forthcoming. But eventually, after a protracted interrogation, she copped to having seen Sandra. She said, oh look, you know, last time I saw Mum was, was on Saturday. We'd gone to the soup run, uh, which is this place underneath like a car parking lot in Clacton where they dish out um, food to the homeless. And they'd gone there, they'd got something to eat, and then they'd um, gone into town. At this point, Sandra and Lucy linked up with Nick. The three of them paused for a cigarette near the McDonald's on Pier Avenue, where they were approached by a stranger. This lad that's unknown to them had come up to them and asked them for a light. This new arrival, who we'll call Mark, began chatting to Nick. He said, why don't you come back to mine, have a drink? And they all went back to his flat. The foursome shared a few friendly drinks, but the atmosphere soured when their new companion made some unwelcome advances towards Sandra. Mum was getting annoyed with this this boy uh, because he was kind of coming on to her and she wasn't having any of it. Eventually, Sandra decided that she'd had enough. Mum had said, I'm going, I'm leaving, I'm going back, I'm going home. Lucy and Nick chose to stay behind and they fell asleep not long after Sandra had departed. The next thing they knew was that this guy was kicking them awake at the early hours in the morning saying, come on, get out, you're not staying here, get out my flat, get out my flat. Um, and that's all they remember. Sandra's bedsit was just a five-minute walk from Mark's flat. Given that he had been one of the last people to see their mother, Carrie, Michaela and Lauren knew that they had to speak to him. They enlisted a community support officer, the uncle of one of Lauren's friends, to accompany them. So we walked there together. Yeah, he like opened the door and we sort of said to him like, oh, you know, our, our mum was here. You know, what happened when she was here? She's gone missing. And we'll ask you some questions because of, we don't know what's happened to our mum. And yeah, he was very standoffish and yeah, like basically was like, no, no, you're not coming in. Get Go away, get out. I'm not talking to you. And, you know, basically like pushed us off the doorstep and slammed the door kind of thing. This encounter threw the sisters for two reasons. The first thing was how young this man was. They later learned he was just 18 years old, practically a baby when compared with the crowd their mother usually ran with. Secondly, just like Nick and Lucy before him, he was acting like he had something to hide. But at the time, this person wasn't obviously 
like a person of interest kind of thing because of it was only just we just found it out and obviously because the police officer was there he obviously said to them you know this is what happened on december the 15th just over a month after she had last seen her mother carrie received an unexpected phone call mark had been taken in for questioning by essex police you know it's like oh we actually they're actually taking us seriously they're actually they're doing something about this, you know, they're going to start helping to find Mum. Mark chose not to engage with the authorities, answering every question with the same two words, no comment. And eventually, they had no choice but to let him go. But the police were far from done. And then from that point, um, we had gone in and they questioned us as well. We had, like... Uh, interview all three of us they also questioned my dad yeah they done like dna swabbing and stuff we had a, a liaison officer appointed to us and stuff um, and we were sort of getting the information that way um, but then they they took the investigation obviously they started running with that investigation then forensics teams were deployed to both sandra's bedsit and mark's flat evidence of sandra's presence was discovered at the 18-year-old's home. In early 2004, Mark was brought in for yet another chat with Essex police. This time, Nick and Lucy were also along for the ride and all three were arrested on suspicion of Sandra's murder. And then my dad was brought in for interview. Anyone that, you know, was close to the situation, they even got um, Paul from the prison brought him from prison where he was I think it was like Chelmsford maybe that Paul was at, in prison and they brought him from there to the police station so that we could speak to him. The police arranged a sit down between Paul and the three sisters. It was a really difficult situation because the way I felt about Paul it wasn't like oh that's my stepdad or my my mum's boyfriend even it was just that's the person that mum you know that the, the, they fight and hurt each other you know so I didn't have a relationship with him but the moment I actually saw him I actually got very emotional and felt like like he was the closest thing to my mum I know he wasn't you know he was in prison but do you know what I mean I, I felt quite emotional I remember I was getting really upset and saying then to him what had happened and and no wanting to hear him say it's going to be okay, even though it seemed ridiculous because I didn't have that relationship with him. But I don't know, he just sort of like, we were hoping he was going to say mum's wrote to me because they wrote to each other like all the time. Because I think the police had gone to their his his place before they brought him from prison. They'd gone to his place where he lived and they'd found letters that my mum had posted through his door. Really incoherent letters where she'd obviously got drunk at some nights and had gone round there and put these letters through the door. But any hopes the siblings had for a productive meeting with Paul were quickly dashed. He was basically saying, you're lying to me, you're lying, that's not real, you've, you've hid her somewhere, you've got mum somewhere, you're hiding her from me, you've done this to, so that I can't see mum. You know, he was like saying this stuff and yeah it was a horrible 15 minutes of very weird 
weirdness but the police had allowed this to happen anyway for us to you know be able to speak to him and we didn't get what we wanted although his and mum's relationship was really volatile like when they were good they were good but when they were drunk they were horrible together and it was kind of like they had like a Jekyll and Hyde relationship but you know I know that he loved my mum more than anything and you know that they they believed that one day they would you know get off the drink together and they would be happy together. Ultimately Nick, Lucy and Mark were released and no charges against them were ever filed. Now all the sisters are left with is the pain of not knowing. How can someone just disappear off the face of the earth and no one knows nothing? Then you feel like angry because you think someone's hurt her or something, but then you're also like still trying to work out what's happened. You just kind of had that hope every time that something changed in the investigation or something else come up, you'd kind of think, oh, they might actually get to the bottom of it. Two decades on, and Carrie, Michaela and Lauren feel like they're back where they started. Put yourself in our shoes and imagine what it would be like for you if you had had 20 years without your mum. You know, she's missed a lot in our lives. She's missed her grandchildren, like most of her grandchildren being born. She's missed weddings. You know, all the kind of stuff that you'd imagine that your mum would be there until you're old, basically. She's missed all of those. And we believe it's because of someone's taken her away from us. And, you know, we just want answers so that we don't have to keep wondering and, you know, making assumptions ourselves as to what could have happened to her or what did happen to her. We just want to know the truth. In many cases, it takes just one piece of information to lead police or family to the answers they crave. If you know what happened to Sandra, or you remember seeing someone like her on November the 15th, 2003, your information could be vital. Even if you've never heard of Sandra Gant before listening to this episode, you could still help. Visit our website, themissingpodcast.org, where you'll find more information on this and every other case we featured on this podcast. There, you can join an online movement, one dedicated to supporting the investigations for all the cases we've covered, including the one you're listening to right now. Since the launch of The Missing Podcast, over 300 volunteers have joined community investigation teams led by Locate International. In the UK alone, there are over 12,000 long-term missing and unidentified people. To support Locate's efforts and to learn more about the vital work they do, visit locate.international where you can join the mission to help locate the missing. The series is also made in collaboration with the charity Missing People, who work tirelessly to support the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. You can reach them by calling or texting 116000 or by emailing them at 116000 at missingpeople.org.uk. We cannot say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. Carrie, Michaela and Lauren 
hope that the information will soon arrive to solve this one. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.